Are you looking for the perfect gift for that very special geek in your life? Well, after 10 years, we finally got around to setting up a page for Geek's Guide to the Galaxy t-shirts over at Threadless.com. Big thanks to our logo artist, Blake Reynolds, for the cool designs, and to our marketing manager, slash my girlfriend, Steph Grossman, for setting up the page and selecting the various options. There are lots of styles and colors to choose from, so collect them all over at geeksguide.threadless.com. So that's geeksguide.threadless.com. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents... The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 392 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Jonathan Kay. He's Canadian editor of Quillette and a host of the Quillette and Wrongspeak podcasts, and his articles have appeared in the New York Times, The New Yorker, Harper's, and Newsweek. And we'll be speaking with him today about his books, Your Move, What Board Games Teach Us About Life, and Among the Truthers, A Journey Through America's Growing Conspiracist Underground. And now here's an interview with Jonathan Kay. All right, so we're here with Jonathan Kay. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. So in an article you wrote for the National Post, you said, As a boy, I liked science fiction for the same reason all boys like it. It offered grand cosmic landscapes on which to project the boundless possibilities of my own life. So just tell us a bit more about how you got into science fiction and which authors you were reading. So I think compared to probably a lot of people you talk to, I'm fairly ignorant of the, the different subgenres of, of science fiction. Um, I had the normal boyish curiosity about sci-fi. Uh, I think a, unlike a lot of my friends, though, I, I recognized that there was a very strong melancholy and nostalgic streak that ran through a lot of science fiction. I think in one of the articles... Uh, I think you you highlighted in our correspondence, uh, Ray Bradbury in particular is is that theme comes through particularly uh, in his work, and a lot of the sci-fi worlds that that you see created, uh, some of them are aspirational, uh, but a lot of them are worlds that uh, just distort some of the anxieties we have about our own our own world, and uh, so. On one hand, I enjoyed the uh, Star Wars-style uh, space operas. In fact, I probably liked those more because there was less emotionalism in it. It was just you can enjoy the adventure. Uh, and like, by the way, like a lot of boys, I also got caught up with uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books, which made a really strong impression on me. I uh, I, I love those books. Yeah, and those are very melancholy for sure. Well, yeah, I mean, it was, <laughs> it's... So there's this, uh, God, I forget who said it, that, that life seen up close is, is always, uh, tragic and seen from a great distance is always funny. And Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is about the entire planet being exterminated and everyone you love being killed. But, uh, <laughs> but you survive and you go off and have adventures in the galaxy. So it's, it's either a horrifying tragedy or it's the funniest book you've ever read. But, uh, to a schoolboy, you know, you could just just ignore all the tragic aspects and uh, and have fun with the plot. Do you, I mean, do you remember any of the other authors that you thought of as the sort of fun utopian kind of authors? I mean, were you reading like Isaac Asimov or Robert Heinlein? Or I was, and I remember I remember Heinlein in particular being. I remember his books made me sad, and uh, I think uh, Asimov, I think maybe a little bit less so, uh, but. 
uh, you know, some of Kurt Vonnegut's writing, which isn't precisely science fiction, had had that effect on me. I also saw a continuum between that and Edgar Allan Poe. I remember Edgar Allan Poe, depending on how people describe him, you know, some some describe him as a proto science fiction writer. Uh, he certainly wrote imaginative fiction, and I remember reading The Pit and the Pendulum, which is you know. It, it's about history, or it's 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 set in a sort of vague um, Inquisition era uh, historical period, but the pacing of the story and the way it transported me in a kind of Game of Thrones way to this other universe uh, reminded me very much of the way, say, Stephen King uh, affects me. I, Stephen King, I think, is a great writer. I, he may be if if a great writer is defined as somebody who makes you want to turn the page, St- Stephen King may be the, the greatest writer I've ever read. I mean, in this article you mentioned, you talk about how Ray Bradbury kind of made you lose interest in science fiction and space travel and fairs and stuff like that. Could you talk about that? I don't. Th- I wouldn't say he he made me lose interest in it, but he made me aware that a lot of the stuff I was reading was escapism. Uh, I think I think the story there was a short story that I of his that I highlighted in it. It was called The Jar. And it was about uh, this this really creepy exhibit at a, a local fair. Uh, <laughs> Ray Bradbury was always obsessed with the sort of like uh, the creepy local iconography of, of small communities, and um, and and there was nothing in it that was like you know monsters from outer space or something like that. But I remember reading it and recognizing that the the effect it was having on me, like the the effect of of fear and like suspense it was all based on on the inner lives of the characters and and in turn my own inner reaction to what was going on and i guess i was growing up at the time i don't know i was i was a young teenager at the time and and it made me realize that like if you want to use literature or reading or writing to to understand who you are and to understand the human condition you're going to have to put away some of the formulaic genres like like space opera and and focus on on the ultimate question of all great writing which is who are we and and science fiction can do an amazing job of that because by locating people in strange environments in a way it can actually um, accelerate our understanding of the question who are we because when you create a new community or in your a new locale uh, you can put away traditions and you can put away the enforcement of old dogmas and laws and stuff and uh, and you can get to the heart very quickly of like, what is it that make, makes human beings ticks? Like if we had to start over on a strange planet, what kind of civilization would we create? And you immediately, you know, you, you can't answer that question by recourse to, well, this is how we've already always done it because this is a new community. Uh, but, but, the, but the most interesting questions you're answering aren't like what's in that cave or what's on the next planet. It's, it's, it's who are we as, as animals? You know, what makes us tick? Why do we do things? Why do we fight? Why do we love? That sort of thing. But in this article, you sort of say that this Bradbury story, The Jar, was so upsetting that you stopped reading Bradbury. So it's like you you had this did, epiphany, yeah. but it was too much for you or something? Or Well, it was depressing. Uh, you know, I was I was dealing with my own stuff in life, like every teenager. Uh, I remember reading The Martian Chronicles. I remember Martian Chronicles is one of those books that, like, I, I remember my the edition that I was looking at. Like, the cover had this super cool, you know, Martian landscape. I was like, oh, wow, this is going to be great. It's going to be this this exciting saga in uh, on Mars. And if you've read the Martian Chronicles, you know, it's like it's it's heavy. Um, 
and uh, it's 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 not light reading. And I think uh, I think to the extent I was looking for escapism at that point in my life, because like I said, I was dealing with a lot of anxieties and ennui that a lot of teenagers are dealing with. Uh, I remember that Bradbury <laughs> was a good writer, but he wasn't supplying it to me. He was interested in, in larger questions. And um, he also, like, the backward-looking nostalgic aspect of it also depressed me because at that stage in your life, you realize, like, your childhood toys don't have as much appeal to you. You're growing up. Uh, you're not going to admit it to your friends, but you miss being a kid. And Bradbury's stories, a lot of them are just about lost innocence and lost youth and the lost youth of societies and civilizations. Um, and, and, and Orwell, in his way, was also obsessed with that sort of thing. Like if, if you look at the, uh, in 1984, this, the, the parole shop where Winston and Julia, for a time, they, they go to that place. It's, and it's full of like old papers and old ornaments and, and things like that, uh, obsolete things that have, that people have no use for in a technological age. Uh, so those, those, those sad themes were kind of wrapped up in my own sense of, of getting older and, and this, this youth that I was leaving behind. Uh, you know, I, I realized the purpose of your show isn't to, uh, <laughs> to do a psychological exploration, but, uh, for a kid, this, this, this is kind of heavy stuff. And again, exploring the stuff wasn't the reason I'd picked up these books to begin with, but they, they followed me into the reading experience. No, that, that's really interesting. And I mean, you say that you didn't, that you, are not maybe as well versed in science fiction as a lot of the people that would appear on the show. But I mean, it is obviously something that, um, you know, means something to you at some level because you've continued to write articles about it. You know, I, I sent you the links for some of them. And you even talk about having this sort of argument with a stranger on the street about Ewoks. So, oh, yeah. you know, it's, it's obviously it's, it's bubbling in there. It's bubbling up. Well, that, uh, that, that was, that was, was an elderly woman and uh, she voiced I think several of the Ewoks in an, in, I'm sure, like what is by now a long forgotten animated adaptation of the, of the Star Wars Ewoks characters. Uh, you know, that's everybody's least favorite characters from everybody's least favorite movie in the Star, <laughs> original Star Wars tri trilogy. Uh, and, and, and she, you know, she made, she had made a good living doing it. And I, I think, in that column, it wasn't about Star Wars. It was about how you can meet really interesting people. I think I helped her carry her bags from a market or something a couple of years ago. Um, but, but yeah, when I met her, she was a veteran voice actor. And I remember thinking, wow, like in this weird way, this woman has inhabited these characters that, you know, although they're not my favorite characters, they're, <laughs> you know, billions, billions of people have seen these characters and, and she got to voice them. Uh, yeah, it's, but, it's part of, sorry, go ahead. But, but how the article starts out, right, is that, um, she, I think she, you, you just pass her on the street and she's saying to someone, oh, your dog looks just like an Ewok. And you yeah. exclaim, <laughs> don't you realize the Ewoks are what ruined Return of the Jedi? Right? Is that? Yeah, it was just, uh, <laughs> um, uh, I, I think, uh, the butt of the joke, of course, in, in that, um, anecdote is me that I'm. This this cranky old weirdo who just picks fights with old woman old women uh, on on the on the street, and and I like to think that by the end of the the column that I'd redeem myself because uh, you know we we shared a few stories, but 
it it is true that is it's 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 like saying that your dog looks like Jar Jar Binks or something. <laughs> uh, it's like this. Um, it's this strangely. Um, it carries so many cultural overtones, and I mean, I guess this this is true of any cultural institution that has just has been around for years, and everyone has an opinion on. Uh, like if you tell somebody that, oh, you know, you're, um, I don't know, um, you know, you're such a Ralph Wiggum, or you're such a, you know, you're such a Barney, or you know, be a Lisa, don't be a Bart, or or you, you know, characters from Game of Thrones, or characters from, you know, pick your favorite uh, beloved franchise, like you're instantly tapping in to like with a single word sometimes like Ewok, you're instantly tapping into this rich lore of memories and associations that people have. So it becomes this cultural shorthand that we all share, uh, but we have to be careful with it because along with that richness goes often very strong feelings about, about different characters. Like if you use a game of Thrones reference and you're playing board games with somebody and you say, Oh, you know, you're conniving like a Lannister, um, you know, that, that, that means something, right? Uh, it means they're they're sinister and they're slimy. Uh, so uh, that's, that's one of the reasons I'm fascinated by science fiction is because with a single word or two, you can tap into people's understanding of the human character. I mean, another thing you say about Ray Bradbury, um, about Fahrenheit 451, is you say, since finishing that book, I have never been able to watch TV without feeling guilty for destroying civilization. And... <laughs> well, that's an exact, yeah, that's an exaggeration. But... Well, um, Sorry, go ahead. Well, well, but in your book, your move, you you know that you actually don't really watch TV or movies at all. So, you know, I don't know. There's something well, going on there. So, um, there is something going on, but it's it's also because I think I was in like grade eight when I read it. And uh, may I ask, how old are you? I'm 42. Okay, so I'm about nine years older than you. Well, I'm 51, and I remember a time when. Uh, you know, it's not that long ago, but uh, many of my friends, and, and certainly my sister, a younger sister, would go home and they would watch six hours of television every night. Like, that was not considered an abnormal thing. Uh, you get home at four and, you know, you have dinner with your parents. And if your parents weren't telling you not to watch TV, I know a lot of people who, uh, like, yeah, they would watch like 40 hours of TV a week. And I have a particular memory of my sister just sitting there. You know, it was a point in her life. She was like me. She was an adolescent. She was depressed about something. And she just, she had that glassy-eyed look that was typical of the characters in Fahrenheit 451. And I remember being horrified by it. Uh, and the shows that were on TV then were much stupider than the shows that are on TV now. You know, we all like to talk about the downfall of, of our culture and stuff. But if if you look at the shows that are popular now they're just they're just much better I, I remember my sister and i would watch shows like happy days and three's company and uh we're supposed to be nostalgic for those shows but when i watch them they're really really stupid <laughs> uh, even compared to like low-end sitcoms that exist now the writing was bad uh the, the plots were terrible there was a book that came out i guess about a decade ago called uh everything god what was it called yeah everything bad Every is good for you yeah and if you read that book, you remember the, the, the author, it's like Stephen Johnson was his name or something like that. Um, he had these diagrams that mapped the character relationships in a typical show from that. I think he picked Dallas, which by the standards of 
uh, the 80s, early 80s, I think was seen like as a high-end show. Uh, and he, you know, compared it to, to a modern show. And there was just a much denser character interaction, uh, these days. Which is to say that, that the shows back then were incredibly stupid. It was a non-interactive medium. And people used it to numb themselves. It was, it was like drinking alcohol. And now we have a neurosis about how much we use our phones. And yeah, people use their phones too much. But at least it's an interactive te- technology. And TV was not an interactive technology. It was like Soma from Brave New World. And, and I had a, a terrible reaction to it. Uh, it's not like I never watched TV. And I still, you know, I'll watch sports on TV now and then. But yeah, uh, Ray Bradbury helped convince me that, that watching TV was a bad thing to do. Right. And so you say that what you do instead of watching TV is you play these tabletop games. And I thought it was really interesting because you kind of say that you, and I can relate to this, but that you, you can't really talk to people, um, that you get, just get bored having ordinary conversations with people, but that if you play tabletop games, then you can uh, interact socially with people for hour after hour and, and not get bored and, and stay engaged. I thought that was an interesting observation. Uh, it's, it's, it's definitely true that um, tabletop games... God, they achieve. They, they do a lot in my life for me. They, um, they're 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 very mentally stimulating. I, I tend to play like war games and sort of high end strategy games, stuff like that. Which uh, they kind of transport you in this this artificial world, much like a movie. They transport you into this world of like, like of strategy, uh, which is like totally divorced from the world you're in. It's it's like a it's it's like it's like your mind is in a chessboard type thing. And I love doing that. And it is a social experience. But it's not the social experience that, like this time of year, I hate, well, I don't want, I don't want to say I hate this time of year. I don't want to be humbug, but, you know, sitting around, you know, someone has a Christmas drop in, uh, and, you know, sitting around, uh, asking banal questions. And it's not, it's not the end of the world. Like, and, you know, that's part of being human is we socialize and stuff like that. But, uh, it's not my favorite thing. And to spend an afternoon playing board games, you know, you don't have, the electronic distractions, and you don't feel like you're drugging yourself with the idiot box. But at the same time, you are being entertained, and you're, it's a transcendent experience. Like, you're in another domain. You're in this strategic domain that's being dictated by the game. But you're interacting with other people. And then what happens is that experience becomes super real, like a great movie. And my board gaming friends, like, we still talk about games that we played like 20 years ago. Say, hey, do you remember that time we played this game where there are like these incredible twists of fate that took place within the game? And, um, that, that has, uh, so it has a social function in my life. It has an intellectual function. I've now written a book about it. So I guess it has a professional and editorial function. It's, it's, it's become a huge part of my life. I mean, do you live around the corner from a game store or something? Like, how are you able to play tabletop games that often? I mean, I, I have a hard time just getting people together, like once a month or something, to play tabletop yeah. games. Yeah, uh, it is tough, especially. So, um, you know, I don't want to stereotype people by age, but what happens a lot of the time is the uh, the golden age for people for board gaming or for any hobby often is is college or early twenties when you have a lot of time. And and then you have kids or your job gets intense or other challenges present themselves and you don't have a lot of time for those hobbies. Uh, but then your kids grow up a little and you're in your 40s or 50s and you come back to them. So I, I'm, I'm on the, the other end of the curve. Uh, and I'm a typical board gamer. I played a lot in, in college and now I'm playing a lot in, in middle age. And, and you have to work at it. Like uh, 
the game that I really love, it's this obscure game called Advanced Squad Leader. It's a World War II game. I have a chapter about it in my book. Like, um, you know, there's probably maybe like 10,000 serious ASL players in the whole world. And so every year I go to, you know, I just came back from Albany. Uh, we have a tournament there. I go to Cleveland every year in October for a tournament. In May, sorry, in March, I'll be going to Copenhagen uh, for a tournament. Uh, and even, you know, I live in Toronto, which is a city of 3 million people, but there, there probably aren't more than a couple of hundred or maybe a couple of thousand like really serious board gamers. And so sometimes I'll have to go to different parts of the city to, to meetups. And uh, although board gaming itself is a subculture, it's a subculture of subcultures. So uh, someone who loves one game may not have any interest in another game. So of those couple of thousand people, there might only be like 10 or 20 who share my passion for a particular game. So you have to, it's like everything else. You have to work at it. You have to uh, develop a network of contacts. And, and, and I've definitely given up other things so that I could do it. Uh, you know, there's, there's other hobbies I have that I've, I've essentially, like I don't play video games anymore because I had to choose one. Uh, I wasn't going to give up my, you know, I, I'm a dad and I spend time with my kids, but uh, I, I, had to, I had to choose between which hobbies I was going to pursue. Well, like this snakes and lattes place that you mentioned in the book, is that someplace, is that someplace close to you or did you go a lot or do you only drop? So snakes and lattes is actually a very, uh, I I guess you could say it's an important institution. I think it was, I think it remains, I'm not sure if it's, it's still the biggest board game cafe in uh, North America, but I think it might be the oldest single purpose uh, urban board game cafe. Like it opened up, I guess maybe 10 years ago with thousands of games. It now has like four or five locations in Toronto. It's, it's become this huge thing. There's a snakes and it's called the, um, the snakes podcast and the snakes and lattes business model became a model for people creating board game cafes in other cities. Uh, Although it's other cities still haven't caught up. Like if you go to Manhattan, there, there are only two real board game cafes in Manhattan because real estate is so expensive. Uh, Toronto is kind of in a sweet spot where we have the, the, the high population density that can support a big board game cafe culture, but the real estate prices aren't so insane that it isn't prohibitive, although that may change soon. Yeah, I just moved from uh, New York, so I'm just curious. What are the two in Manhattan so, that you would go yeah. to? Yeah, so one is called, un, uh, it's called the Uncommons, which is uh, way down in the village. Uh, south of NYU, uh, it's it's on that it's on that street that used to. There's still one. It's it's across the street from Chess Forum, uh, where all the the chess shops are in the village. Um, and that's but it's 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 a fun place, but it's small. Uh, it's kind of cramped because it it has to be. Uh, and then there's a place that opened up a couple of years ago, uh, way up, God, 110th Street or something like that on the west side, which is a bigger space, but. I actually went there last time. Uh, I was in New York about a month ago. It's 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 like eighty or ninety percent role playing games. So I went. I forget which. It was one of the weekday theme nights, and it was almost entirely like D and D type stuff. There wasn't a lot of strategy gaming, but uh, that those two. And I actually I, because I was writing an article about the subject, I, I I asked the owner, said, "Are you aware of any others?" And uh, he said, "Right now, those are the only two in Manhattan." Yeah, because I mean, I'm into Dungeons and Dragons as well. And, um, you know, I would go to a place called the Brooklyn Strategist in Brooklyn, obviously. Yeah, and then yeah. I lived in Queens and there was a place called the Geekery there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, not a ton. Um, there's also uh, on 34th, I think there's a place called the Complete Strategist. 
um, which is <laughs> this, this terrifyingly overstuffed play. I think it's on the north side of 34th that it looks like it's about, you know, one one bad accident away from like the whole place going up in flames. It's <laughs> it's like there's like 100,000 games stuffed into that. But it's not a cafe. And actually, if you go to that place, you can see exactly what board game culture looked like in the 70s and 80s because they have this bulletin board and the bulletin board is exactly what bulletin boards in like every comic book store and sci-fi and board game store looked like when I was a kid. It was like, you know, desperately seeking opponents for age of Rome or, you know, we need a fourth for such and such, you know, with, with the phone numbers written at the bottom with little, little hatched pieces of paper that you, you tore off and stuck, stuck in your pocket. Uh, it was <laughs> they were like little messages from 40 years ago. And, and some people, some people still live in that world. Uh, they, you know, they don't want to be on the internet. It's part of the reasons they do board gaming. Right. And I, I guess I hadn't even realized until I read your book how massively the popularity of board games had increased. I mean, you say that the sales in the U.S. and Canada grew from 75 million to 305 million, so more than quadrupled from 2013 to 2016. Um, has that, I mean, a lot of times, you know, when you're really into something niche and you really love it, and then it, if it gets popular, you can, you're kind of like, oh, goddamn, all these posers coming in and stuff like that. Have you, um, had any negative reaction to the board games getting so much more popular or is it just totally great as far as you're concerned? So I, I haven't, no, I haven't had any negative reaction like that. I would say you're absolutely right that there's often a bandwagon effect when it comes to things like sports teams or bands or stuff like that. I'd say board gaming is a little different because the barrier to entry for proclaiming yourself a board game fan uh, is to play board games. And unless you really love playing like uh, i don't know power grid you're not going to spend three hours playing power grid uh it's not you, you know you, people don't people don't just buy a power grid t-shirt and get a power grid backpack and like you know uh proclaim themselves power grid fans like uh the the, the price of entry is measured in in the hours you spend doing it and it's also like i said before it's a subculture of subcultures like so uh, this year, for the first time, I went to um, to Gen Con, which is in Indianapolis. Uh, it's it's the it's the biggest board game meetup in North America, and I think it's the second biggest in the world. I think Spiel in Germany is is the biggest. But uh, uh, Gen Con takes place in Lucas Oil Stadium, which is where the Indianapolis Colts play. And you think, oh well, that's you know, there's no way a bunch of board gamers are going to be able to fill up uh, a complex like that. But not only do they fill up the the floor, well, the, the AstroTurf uh, grounds of that stadium, with gaming, they, they spill out into all these additional conference buildings where there's all kinds of seminars and meetups and uh, people selling stuff and there's tournaments. Uh, and I, I forget the number. It's something like seventy or 80,000 people are there. Like it's, it's, it's a really big conference. And it's, it's, it's expensive, um, you know, to get the badges. I remember I didn't get my badge online, so I had to line up for two hours to get my badge. It's, it feels like you're at sort of, you know, a, a popular music event and, um, it's, it's, it's that level of thing. But, and yet it's different because when you go to a concert with 80,000 people, everyone is looking at the same stage. Like you're all there for exactly the same thing. You're all buying the same t-shirt. You're all having the same experience. You're all tweeting the same photos. Whereas those 80,000 people are fans of a thousand different games. And once they get into Lucas Oil Stadium, 
they all go to their own little sub niche to play with the seven other people who came to play that game. <laughs> so there, are, like, there's a lot of overlap in terms of their personality, but it's also like a Tower of Babel type thing where, you know, you go to the bathroom or whatever, and there's, there's, you know, some guys dressed like a Smurf, and one guy's dressed like a pirate, and some guys there having a rules argument about settlers of Catan, and like they're all ambassadors from their own little. Uh, tiny little isolated kingdoms of dorkery, uh, which is one of the reasons I like it. Like it's, you know, if you're a social scientist or you just have interest in subcultures, uh, everywhere you look, there's something interesting. Uh, but, but I also recognize the fact that, you know, I like, I, I love a hundred different games, but the hundred different games I love are a, a small fraction of all the games that people are playing there. Uh, like half the, the, the people there are there for miniatures. You know, these games where you, you paint miniatures and you, um, Warhammer is, is, is an example. One of these games these play. I've never played it, but, and there's a, a dozen games like that. And they're huge. Like, you know, there'll be some guy there who's just using uh, airbrush techniques and showing people how to paint their, their miniatures. And, and they're, they're people who go just for that. Like they love it. And I like, shoot me now. Like I have zero interest in, you know, like spending four hours painting like a, a tiny little goblin so he can fight someone else's little goblin. It's just like my idea. I'd rather do macrame. And yet those people think that what I'm doing, you know, uh, some w world war two game with a 300 page rule book, like they think that's, that's the ultimate in stupidity. So, uh, it's <laughs> on one hand you say, Oh yes, I'm here with 80,000 of my closest friends and we all love the same things. But on, on, on the other hand, uh, you're also very different. Yeah. Well, so I mentioned that I, you know, I'm really into Dungeons and Dragons, and one of the chapters in the book is about Dungeons and Dragons. It's a chapter written by your your uh, co-author uh, Joan Moriarty, um, but she's sort of talking about how there was this huge moral panic uh, in the '80s around Dungeons and Dragons when I was playing it, and then there was another huge moral panic around Doom when I was playing yep. it in the yep. '90s. And you mentioned that you're a fan of first-person shooters, and I was just curious if those moral panics um, affected you at all uh, when you were gaming. Uh, so, Dungeons & Dragons, it's true. Um, now, the moral panic around D&D had a religious aspect to it because uh, this was, well, I guess this was the 70s, and it was around the time where the moral majority and the Christian right were were, were, were strong, and anything that had to do with the occult or uh, myth and magic, that sort of thing. I mean, you still see stories about that, right? Like religious Christians who won't let their kids celebrate Halloween and stuff. It's it's not it's not entirely in remission, but around this time, uh, yeah. Uh, but it was also tied up with heavy metal music. Uh, again, this is this is before your time, but you had bands that, uh, you know, as part of their their publicity generation, they would celebrate occult themes and, and, and occasionally, I mean, there were these tragic stories of, of these kids who would like take the lyrics to, to these songs seriously and they'd, they'd draw pentagrams in the ground and kill themselves. Like there were, there were some genuinely, uh, horrible stories that, I mean, they were isolated stories, but it created a sense of moral panic. And to some extent, Dungeons and Dragons got caught up in that. The video game thing was a little different. Uh, when first person shoot, when the technology, of a, of a standard computer was enough to, to support an FPS video game, uh, which was around the time of the emergence of like the 386 and 486 technology, uh, for what we, you know, PCs. This was, I guess, uh, early mid eighties around when Doom came out. Um, the 3D aspect created 
what well, it's primitive by modern standards, but it created an immersive cinematic environment and it, 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 it made people, it freaked people out because you were in this kind of 3D world and Doom itself, I, I got addicted to it. On the other hand, I, I get addicted to all kinds of games. So the fact that it was 3D like wasn't special for me. Uh, but as with many things, a lot of the people, and the same was true of Dungeons and Dragons, the people who were going on 2020 and 60 Minutes and all these shows to talk about the problem are people who like had no familiarity with the game, right? They were, you know, middle-aged social scientists who, um, had read reports about it, but they, they've never actually like sat down and played the game. And so, yeah, it was, it was the same kind of, 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 of panic. I think in the case of video games, it, probably is is more valid like i know people um who have genuine video game addictions um my friend a colleague i work with uh got addicted to civ civilization in japan and korea in particular video game addiction is a huge issue and uh i I started to note Sorry, go ahead. Well, but the the panic wasn't around addiction, which is maybe a legitimate concern, but around people becoming hyper violent after playing the first person shooters, and that just doesn't, you know, that's completely at odds with all. So that was Columbine, yeah. So so okay, so that was a particular form of social panic that Columbine. uh, Of course, I'm talking about 1999. I think that was the um, uh, God, what are their names? Was it Dylan Smith and uh, Eric Uh, Klebold? Dylan. Klebold and Eric Harris. Okay. Yeah, okay, maybe that's it. I mean, that that set off all kinds. It, it set off... So if you remember, it was a, there was a goth social panic because they were supposed to be goths, but I think they turned out they weren't goths. There was an anti-Christian social panic because there was a rumor, which persisted for a long time, that they targeted Christians, and I think in the end that turned out to be false. Um, there was, it was rumors about their video game use, and, and, and probably like they did dabble in a lot of this, this stuff because confused, dark, uh, whacked out teenagers, uh, you know, who were into nihilism and stuff, they, they will, they'll latch onto anything that gives meaning to their lives for 15 minutes, right? And so they probably did dabble in all this stuff for a little bit, but it created, like, whatever you were suspicious of in society, the Columbine shootings gave you, uh, the, the fodder you needed to go after that as being the source of all evil. And, but that was a very particular type of thing involving like school shootings and violence and stuff like that. But it also morphed into something that was more legitimate, which to my mind was, was the video game addiction thing. The violence thing, I mean, it wasn't crazy to think that a person who was playing first person shooter games 12 hours a day is going to become desensitized to violence. That said, there are studies that show that even very, very, very small children uh, instantly know the difference between uh, fake cartoon violence and real violence. And I think like even two and three-year-old kids, if you show them a video of like Bugs Bunny hitting Daffy Duck or whatever, they don't care. But if you show them like the equivalent of like someone using a broom to whack like a real rabbit or something, they get very upset by it. So uh, it, I don't think it was crazy to think that a kid could get desensitized to violence through video games. But I do think that there has been research to show that that's been overblown. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I mean, I would say that at least from my perspective, you know, growing up with those two, from my point of view, moral panics, it really shaped my outlook in terms of just feeling like adults really had no idea what they were talking about and just being just having a real aversion to people just, you know, getting emotionally worked up without before all the facts were in and stuff like that. 
And so that's kind of, you know, I think led into my interest in, in rationalism and skepticism and, and those sorts of things, which is also why I wanted to bring up your, your book, Among the Truthers, uh, which came out in 2011. And so I guess, could you just talk a little bit about, yeah, I mean, so, so, so that was sort of my journey into rationalism or part of it anyway. So what, kind of what was your journey into wanting to look into conspiracy theories from a sort of skeptical standpoint? So for me, the story is kind of boring. Um, I mean, I was the comment editor uh, for a newspaper at the time, and I, among the hundred other messages, emails I got every day, you know, people submitting articles, were people who were telling me that 9-11 was an inside job. And I remember being really fascinated by it, because I have an engineering background, and so I was able to like follow some of their theories, or at least the the premises of some of their theories. Uh, I took some civil engineering courses and I, my specialty was metallurgical engineering, which is germane to a lot of their theories about like the melting point of the girders and stuff like that. So I, I was interested on that basis, but I was also interested in the, the dynamics of the conversation. Like I noticed that when I did engage these people, I wasn't winning my arguments with them. I thought like, you know, it's slam dunk. Their, their theories are so crazy that all you have to do is have discussions with them and you can show them uh, that they're wrong. But it wasn't like that at all. They, they had all these techniques for putting the burden of proof on me and getting me all wrapped up in debating stuff that they had been researching for months. So they had all these factoids. And I remember being really interested in this. And some of them had like, it was clear that it had taken over their lives. And I was also interested in the effect of media. Like a lot of them had become radicalized through uh, video, which at the time, uh, web video wasn't a new phenomenon, but uh, the ability of people to make fairly slick videos in their basement, that was a new thing. And it was also the era when I think it was like the beginning of the age when YouTube, you'd watch YouTube and after you watch the video, they'd say, well, if you like that video, you may watch this one. You may like this one. And people were sort of daisy chaining these conspiracy videos together. So I'd interview these people and in the space of a month, they'd, they'd become radicalized not only when it came to 9-11, but, you know, five or six other conspiracy theories. And the reason was because they were being fed through these algorithms. This is, this is long before people started raising concerns about this sort of thing, where the, where YouTube was predicting what kind of video they would like based on the last video they liked. And so they weren't just being radicalized in one or two conspiracy theories. They were kind of like getting all of them all at once and they became conspiracists. It, it just dominated the way they thought about the world. And I found that interesting and that's why I wrote the book about it. I mean, the thing that really grabbed my attention about this book was that you you have this sort of taxonomy of conspiracy theorists. And obviously, we don't have time to go into all the details, but I just want to read this this list. So you have the midlife crisis case, the failed historian, the damaged survivor, the cosmic voyager, the clinical conspiracist, the crank, the evangelical doomsayer, and the firebrand. And I just think it's interesting that those categories exist. And I was just curious, did you come up with all those categories? Were you drawing on anyone else? Was there any, um, you know ambiguity or like you had to decide, do I want this many categories versus this many or anything like that? So uh, this this chapter is basically why I wrote the book. Uh, you know, The other stuff in the book I, I found interesting. But when I wrote the book, 
people encouraged me to organize the book according to conspiracy theory. They'd say, you know, why don't you have a chapter on the Illuminati and a chapter on anti-Semitism and a chapter on the Freemasons or birthers? And, and some of the other chapters do loosely follow that. But I realized early on that that wasn't really the most interesting thing going on because the most interesting question I wanted to answer is what psychological need do these conspiracy theories fill for people? And, and earlier in this conversation, we were talking about how the most interesting kind of science fiction or any kind of fiction answers that basic question, who are we? They, they look inside. They look inside us. And conspiracy theories, uh, superficially, the reason people are interested in conspiracy theories, even people who aren't conspiracy theorists, is they like kind of the uh, Buck Rogers aspect of it. Like, uh, you know, there are some exotic conspiracy theories about UFOs and the moon landing and, and some of the more outrageous conspiracy theories about 9-11 involve lasers and holograms and stuff like that. Um, lizards ruling the world. Yeah, yeah, and that's David, David Icke uh, and, and the lizards, and he's, for all I know, he's, he's still selling out auditoriums with, with, with that stuff. But that gets old really quick because they're just made-up stories, right? Like... You know, you or I could make up a conspiracy theory about any group we wanted. It's not that hard. What was more interesting to me is, is what is the appetite? Like, why are people doing this? And this chapter five in my book, um, this is like, God, eight years ago I wrote it. Uh, I organized it according to what is the psychological appetite being, being filled. And at the, at the, the highest order of of psychological understanding, conspiracy theories, they're expressions of distrust and they're explanations for evil. And we all, we all want to explain bad things that happen in our lives and in society. And we all want a language to express our distrust with the institutions that fail us. Uh, conspiracy, conspiracism is a sort of pathological response to that. And in some cases it takes over people's lives and I wanted to ask why. And so, like, for instance, um, the midlife crisis case, um, there's a guy, his name is, uh, is Ga Richard Gage, I think is his name. Uh, he's the guy who started this group. Uh, it's called Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. And he told me, I've interviewed him several times, and he, he told me the story about how his career was failing and he was just like, everything was going wrong in his life. And he was driving the Pacific Coast Highway and he, this guy came on the radio and started talking about 9-11 conspiracy, conspiracy theories. And like he had to stop his car and go to the side of the road. And suddenly it was like everything made sense. And then since then, like his life had a sense of purpose. And he just like went around proselytizing 9-11 conspiracism. But it was, it was like a classic, like I know people in my own life who've gone through something like that. But it usually has involved like they leave their wife and they marry somebody else or they... Um, they, they, they tell their, their boss to screw off and they, uh, they go to tour, tour Europe on a bicycle or something like that. Like they're looking for a radical break from a life they hate. And it's, it's sort of this classic midlife crisis type thing. And there are some conspiracy theorists for whom that they're looking for something like that to free them from, from the life they're leading. And, and all of these, uh, entries in this typology, I tried to, pick a paradigmatic example and so gauge was the paradigmatic example i used for the midlife crisis case if i remember correctly so are those categories stable over time or if you were writing this book in 2019 would you have any different categories um 
I mean, one of the reasons why I continue to be surprised that people interview me, uh, interview <laughs> me about this book and cite this book is that I find this book very dated. Uh, I wrote this book, as I said, it got published eight years ago. And since then, like a lot has changed. Uh, I know I have a big chapter on the internet and, um, you know, had this book been written 20 years ago, it would be even more dated because, uh, the internet is, is so, such a big part of it. But even regard to the internet, things have changed because I think people who counter conspiracy theories, people who debunk conspiracy theories, they have become more organized on the web. So if I wrote this book now, I'd probably have another chapter about how, although there was a lot of social panic and I bought into some of it about how the internet was going to become a source of conspiracy theories, or at least a leading propagation method for conspiracy theories. Uh, I think now, you know, if you look at the downfall of Alex Jones, or maybe downfall is the wrong word, but like there, there are many sites that have dedicated themselves to exposing Alex Jones. And especially after he started going after uh, parents of the uh, Sandy Hook parent, uh, Sandy Hook ch- uh, kids. Um, those are the kids who were, who were killed. God, wasn't it Lanza, I think was his name? Um, yeah, so uh, th- that was a case in which Alex Jones really overstepped and, and what he did horrified people. And the campaign against him, to a large extent, uh, was based on the internet. So you have a, so that's one aspect that things have changed. But another aspect that things have changed in the age of Trump is that, you know, my book was written about people who believe conspiracy theories. A lot of the conspiracism you see now is what I would call performative conspiracism. You know, a lot of the people who support Trump, liberals are horrified because they'll tell pollsters or they'll go on social media and say, oh, I don't believe anything about Ukraine or I don't believe anything about Russia. And I think in a lot of cases, they they actually do believe it. They're, They're denying the truth as a form of tribal attestation to say... I love Trump so much that I'm going to publicly say that the accusations against him are nonsense because on a moral basis, I think Trump is good for America. And on a moral basis, I prefer him being my president than anyone in the Democratic Party. So as a gesture of support, I'm going to go on Twitter or Facebook and say that the accusations against Trump are bullshit, even though I kind of know that they, they're not bullshit. Like, you know, Trump's done a lot of shady stuff. And I don't, it's very difficult to measure because what I'm alleging here is that people are being insincere. They're being performatively insincere as a political gesture to express support for someone they like. But by the nature of the phenomenon, you can't measure it because that's the thing about insincerity, right? That people aren't going to tell you, oh yeah, I'm just being insincere. But that's probably a chapter I would add in the book now is that a lot of conspiracism is now essentially a form of of tribal political attestation. Because one way social media has changed politics in America is ordinary people can be part of the performance. They may not feel like they can influence politicians. They still have that frustration that, you know, they, they, they feel they're not represented in Washington or their state capitals. But they at least feel like they can stick it to the liberal media or the conservative media by, by saying things that they know bother them. Um, like, you know, New York Times reporters have Twitter accounts and the reporters will say, oh, I can't believe that 45% of Americans believe this or 60% of Americans believe this. And if you're some average voter uh, in a red state, you, you see how 
annoyed these people get by statistics showing that you know this you know x number of americans don't believe the allegations in regard to ukraine or whatever and so you as an ordinary person you can become part of the performance and part of the performance sometimes means going on social media and expressing your support for things that you know aren't true but you're just doing it to uh, to poke someone in the eye and and that's not something i really talk about in the book i talk about conspiracism as a problem of credulity i don't talk about it in in its modern form which often has a performative insincere aspect to it uh, that's that's new that's something that's a an artifact of uh, saturation social media usage. Well, when you talk about people not not necessarily believing the things they're saying, I mean, it's always struck me as really strange when uh, religious people will say like, um, oh, you know, like heaven is the best thing that could ever happen to you and hell's the worst thing that could ever happen to you and living by the Bible is going to make the difference. And you say, well, but you're having premarital sex and that's against the Bible. And they're like, yeah, like whatever, you know, and it's like there's this huge disconnect between what they say they believe and how they actually act. And there's an example of that in the book where you say, one of the great ironies of the truth movement is that its activists typically hold their meetings in large, unsecured locations such as college auditoriums, even as they insist that government agents will stop at nothing to protect their conspiracy for world domination. Right. They they compartmentalize. That, I think, is a little different um, because there is a certain amount of compartmentalization that that even the most sincere and rabid conspiracy theorist has to do to make life livable. Uh, if you really believe that the government is trying to kill you and the water is full of poison and the uh, the very air around you is full of harmful electromagnetic radiation, etc., uh, etc., et then, then you'll never leave the house and you'll just be curled up in a fetal position or, or you'll move to another country. And, and if you're not willing to do that, you have to operate in society, which means you have to compartmentalize. And compartmentalizing is a kind of survival strategy for people who have radical ideas, including uh, radical, uh, radically religious people. Because as you say, it's, it's impossible to live your life according to the dictates of Leviticus, right? You, um, you know, if you accidentally have sex with a menstruating woman, you, you know, you get killed. It's, it's impossible. You can't live your life that way. So, there is a, a certain kind of compartmentalization that even sincere conspiracy theorists believe in, but the kind of um, compartmentalization I'm talking about now is is different. It's it's a I would say a cynical, self-aware kind of compartmentalization, which is meant for performance. The compartmentalization exhibited by the people that I interviewed was meant for survival, like just to to you know. Um, Richard Gage would fly around the country to give his speeches, even though his claim was that the government shot down four of its its four aircraft and murdered all these people. Uh, it makes no sense that he would get on board a commercial aircraft, especially given who he is, but he does it because he has no other way of getting around to give his speeches. So he had to compartmentalize as a sort of professional survival strategy. The compartmentalization that you see now is more performative. It's It's done in a self-aware way by people who are trying to perform their their weird beliefs in order to piss people off. So my next, this is really a question for Alex Jones, but I'm almost certainly not going to interview Alex Jones. So I'm just going to ask you and you can- I interviewed him. By the way, he was, when I interviewed him, he was, he was a nice guy and, and, and very charming. Uh, and um, he gave me a lot of time. Uh, and, and a lot of these people, and many of the anti-Semites that, that I interviewed, you know, I'm Jewish, but 
I'd call them up and they say, oh yeah, hey, let's, you know, they'd invite me to their house and stuff like that. They would compartmentalize too. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I, I tried to take pains in the book, say that these are, interviewing Alex Jones is actually a fun experience. If you ever get the, the opportunity to do so, <laughs> you should do it. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll take that in, under consideration. But so, you know, because I, I used to, I lived in Austin briefly back in the year 2000, and I used to watch Alex Jones on public access TV there. And at the time, I don't think nobody I, I knew had ever heard of him. I, and I just watched him because I thought it was hilarious, you know, because he's, you know, just so out there. Um, but he was always saying, like, the government's going to come and seize your guns, like, any day now. It could be tomorrow, you know. And um, and I would just watch this and kind of laugh. But but then now it's like 20 years have gone by and I'm just dying to ask him, you know, like, what's the hold up on the seizing the guns thing? <laughs> like, yeah. you know, and I just imagine like all these th these guys that had this whole conspiracy, but now they're all retiring, you know, and they have to like recruit new young guys and, right. and tell them yeah. about the conspiracy <laughs> to seize everyone's guns. Like, I just wonder, like, how do you what, 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 what would the response be to that question? Well, there's, there's a, a very interesting precedent for that, which is the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, who, um, who, as you probably know, is sort of a millenarian, um, I, I, well, they are, I guess they're Christian. Uh, I mean, they're, uh, theologically and doctrinally, they're, they're, they're so radically different from mainline Christians that maybe a lot of Christians don't consider themselves Christian. They consider themselves Christian. And they prophesize the end of the world several times. And, there are still millions of Jehovah's Witnesses around, despite the fact that um, there's actually um, there's a woman named uh, Amber Scora, who's a former Jehovah's Witness. She just wrote a great book about her time. The book is called Leaving the Witness. Uh, if you ever get a chance to interview her, she's she's quite brilliant. And her book just came out. And I, I just interviewed her for my podcast. And she she listed in her book all the times that they said, yeah, the world is definitely ending on this date, and then it didn't end, and you would think that the whole group would just split up, but they didn't. And the reason they didn't is because they originally bonded over these predictions and the theology and stuff, but then they end up bonding for cultural reasons. And, and those cultural attachments and social attachments and political attachments don't dissolve when the prophecy is falsified. And I think the same is true with conspiracy theorists, that they become very attached to these movements and their whole political outlook and sometimes even their social lives revolve around this sort of thing. And so when prophecies are fals falsified, uh, they find ways to reconcile that and, and uh, continue the movement because they're not willing to give up all the uh, ancillary benefits and connections well, that, that, that went along with it. My my understanding is that with the uh, the apocalyptic folks that they always say, well, the reason the world didn't end is because of us. You know, God changed right. his mind because because we were so devout. So you think that's what Alex Jones would say? It was the Alex Jones show that has forestalled the no, I don't uh, firearm confiscation. So I, I'm not a, I'm not a, a faithful enough student of Alex Jones to know <laughs> what his rationale is. But like he, uh, if if he's if he's smart, he hasn't given any hard and fast dates like. Um, when the FEMA camps are, are getting set up or when, when the guns are going to get taken away. In a way, his, Alex Jones has survived, survived for so long as a conspiracy theorist because his conspiracism, it's not really right wing or left wing. Like it's a sort of a general purpose anti-authoritarian conspiracism. I, he is identified as a right wing conspiracy theorist under the, the current political typology we have but a lot of the ideas he has about like 
big corporations and globalists and stuff like that. I mean, a lot of that figures into left-wing conspiracism. And I don't think it's a coincidence that he's one of the few guys who, you know, he was just as popular under Bush as under Obama and then under Trump. Because if you hate big companies and you hate big government uh, and you're suspicious of religion and the media, it doesn't matter who's in power. You you can fit that conspiratorial way of looking at the world through uh, in, in in any milieu, and and because that's that is one of the universal elements of conspiracism is that you distrust all forms of authority, uh, and that often takes expression by hatred of, of mass media, uh, but also as I say, religion, corporations, government, including world government. Some conspiracy conspiracy theorists get obsessed with their local government, and they spend like their whole lives litigating some property issue against like some local city councilor, and they're <laughs> convinced that you know. And then they'll, as a journalist, they'll send me six hundred pages of files and stuff, and it's sad. I mean, their whole lives get taken over by it. But they're suspicious of all forms of authority uh, at all levels and of all types. I mean, one of the points you make in the book is you say that you kind of identified with some of these conspiracy theorists, you know, of the sort of obsessional um, character of, of this. And it's sort of, um, you know, you're saying that also a lot of conspiracy theories sort of impinge on science fictional territory. And actually, one of the people you met was an actual science fiction writer. Um, I am not familiar with him, but Steve Alton, apparently the movie The Meg with Jason. Yeah, was yeah, yeah, yeah. One of his books. Yeah. But could you just talk about that, about, you know, to what extent is there a, an overlap between geeks and conspiracy theorists and what determines whether you go down that, fall down that rabbit hole as a geek or not? So um, I remember uh, very much where I was when I met um, Steve Alton. I remember the, the book was called, I think the book was called Meg. It was about this giant yeah. prehistoric, uh, like super shark that goes around eating things. And... He showed up at, this was 2009, and I had gone to New York City to report on the 9-11 Truther movement. And there was, it was at a church in the Bowery, and someone got up, actually I remember exactly who it was who got up. There was an anti-Semitic Truther who got up and started putting up all these slides showing how the U.S. government and the media is controlled by, he didn't say Jews, he said, he used uh, euphemism, he said, Ameri <laughs> it's so stupid, he said, American-Israeli dual citizens, uh, which was like, his <laughs> it was his really long, obvious code word for Jews. And it was like a standard thing where it was like a flowchart and... um I think some people in the room were into it, but Alden, to his great credit, like he got up during the Q&A and he said, like, this is bullshit. This is just like anti-Semitic nonsense. And I, you know, I'm suspicious of the U.S. government in regard to 9-11, but I didn't come here to listen to, to standard anti-Semitic tropes. And he like said that to the whole room. I was super impressed. And I think I had interviewed him before. But the guy who had given his speech, who, who gave the anti-Semitic speech, he's a guy who wrote for a website, I'm not sure if it's still around, it's called Veterans Today. It's Despite the patriotic name, it's just like this garbage anti-Semitic site. And um, I'd interviewed him too, and I knew both of them, and somehow, like, after the guy's speech, he got off the podium and started arguing with Steve, and I got, like, roped into it, because I, like... <laughs> 
I think they saw me as sort of like an honest broker because, and, and I, I happen to be Jewish. And I think Steve might be Jewish too. It was just this totally weird scene. But I think I, if I remember correctly, like in the book, I wrote in an upbeat way because I was heartened by the fact that 50 years ago, it was just taken for granted that many conspiracy theorists were anti-Semites. And, and it is true that even today, a lot of conspiracy theorists are anti-Semites. But in that room, like there were a lot of people who were like, no, anti-Semitism is not cool. Like, you know, yes, George Bush and Dick Cheney blew up the World Trade Center on behalf of our lizard overlords, but anti-Semitism <laughs> is not cool. And I, you know what? I, that was like for Jews, that's a win. Uh, that even these people who are in this like really fringe movement, um, they had no time for that. I, well, I mean, I shouldn't exaggerate. Like this guy was permitted to spend 20 minutes uh, spouting uh, anti-Semitic bullshit, but he got called out on it, and and I was happy about that. But so you don't have any other thoughts on how you didn't end up going down that path, or other, you know, geeks don't end up going down that. Path. Oh, sorry, yeah. So so the other aspect of your question about geeks. So one thing I say in in the book is that there is very much a difference between men and women when it comes to conspiracy theories. And it, it is, you know, trigger alert, I'm about to talk about stereotypes. Uh, men tend to go in for conspiracy theories that have, like, a strong technological aspect. Um, moon landing conspiracy theories are not popular. I, I actually encountered very few of them. But it tends, to the extent that people got into it, there was men in particular got into that. Men got into JFK stuff because of the ballistics and the guns and stuff like that. Uh, 9-11, a lot, yeah, it's sort of, you know, um, missiles and fighters being scrambled at Langley Air Force Base. Like, there is a sort of born conspiracy uh, type thing going on. Um, women are also conspiracy theorists, just like men, but statistically speaking, from what I could tell, it was more medical conspiracy theories uh, it was more body integrity issues, uh, vaccines, uh, GMOs, um, food additives. I mean, by the way, these are things that a lot of people are concerned about, not just conspiracy theorists, but they kind of took it to a higher level. Uh, alien ad abduction conspiracy theories, um, not a huge j genre, but a lot of it involved women. There was sort of like a ravishment fantasy kind of stuff going on sometimes. Um but a lot of it often had to do with their kids. So like autism, uh, vaccine autism, junk science, and conspiracy theories, women are disproportionately involved in that kind of thing, in part because it involves protecting their kids. Uh, and, and because often mothers are much keener observers of their, their kids' behaviors. Uh, and when their kids don't meet behavioral expectations set by pediatricians, it's typically the woman who monitors that. So women are much more into those kind of conspiracy theories where men are kind of tend to be into the sort of like the adolescent juvenile like kind of uh third rate science fiction conspiracy theories in involving guns and lasers and stuff like that um so there is there's that overlap on the male side well well yeah i mean you say in the book that um you know a lot of the conspiracy theorists are like something out of a hollywood movie and that a surprising percentage of conspiracy theorists actually refer to Hollywood movies to explain, yes. you know, to yeah. uh, dramatize their theories. Yeah, so in, including there's one metaphor in particular, I think I mentioned the book, is the red pill, blue pill thing from The Matrix. Um, 
I think it's from the Matrix, right? Yeah, it's yeah. where yeah. So um, that that is really popular, and actually, it's 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 now become part. I wouldn't say it's part of mainstream political parlance, but as an idiom, it it has uh, jumped over, I think, to certain forms of political discourse. But the idea was that the conspiracy theorists considered themselves people who had the moral courage to face the truth of the dystopia we live in. Uh, and I always forget which pill it is, the red pill or the blue pill, but whichever the pill... The red pill is the one that reveals the truth. Okay, so so then they're, they're red pill eating, eating people who, who have the courage. They're like, give me the red pill, I can handle it. Whereas people like you and me are sheeple who <laughs> we take the blue pill because we want to live in a world of lies, which are comforting. And this isn't just a dominant metaphor. It's also a form of, of self-aggrandizement because it, it creates this distinction between people who have moral courage and those who don't. Uh, there were also others, um, uh, cinematic references you would see. Um, one, one thing that was really interesting is, is I, someone actually wrote an academic paper about this is conspiracy theories involving aliens who abduct people. Uh, and often, you know how they're often described, the, the aliens kind of look like giant fetuses. Like they, they, they look like, they often have very childlike, uh, properties. And, and part of the reason for that is because we have this sort of myth that like children have all this ancient, or this like, this wisdom, uh, to impart to us. It's like baby Jesus type stuff. And, and some of these, theories involved like the aliens coming to warn us about nuclear war or something and there are these like very um uh god what's the word they're untainted by by the sort of worldly evil that we know here on earth and so they're depicted as babies but they also look a lot like the way kids look in ultrasound and historically these reports of aliens looking like fetuses began around the time that ultrasound technology became popularized and women started looking being able to see what kids look like inside their stomach and that was around the time that aliens started looking like those kind of fetuses and it was also around the time that people started reporting that they were getting probed by aliens uh, because a lot of you know gynecological examination and other forms of public health were uh, involved probing and stuff like that and it all got wrapped up in, in the body integrity issues that people have. And some of that is clinical. Like if a very popular, well, I wouldn't say popular, but uh, people who are afflicted with schizophrenia, a lot of their, their delusions are based on body integrity. So, you know, someone's replaced a tooth with a radio or, or, you know, someone is, is secretly, uh, spiking their food. Um, we, as human beings, we have for evolutionary reasons we are we're paranoid and rightly paranoid about body integrity issues you know you you could eat the wrong berry and die and and so this is something that resonates with us already uh but people with mental health issues or people who have strong forms of conspiracism uh they take that to another level and it dominates their their life it seems like the conspiracy theorists they also have this very hollywood image of spies and what spies do where they're always you know assassinating people and hijacking planes and stuff like that when Instead of, you know, going to foreign countries with suitcases full of money and trying to bribe people who hate their jobs to tell them secrets, you know, it's, it is, right. it is very Hollywood. Well, they don't, of everything. yeah, I mean, they're people, 
well, there are people like me. Well, I guess you know, I, I know a little bit about spies, and I wrote a book with a spy once. Um, but you know, when I was say thirty years old, if you asked me what spies do, it, I would refer you to a James Bond movie because that's <laughs> the only information I had. And so, yeah, they're no different from ordinary people who their knowledge of spycraft is 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 based based on movies. But I think one point I make in the book is that they have a curiously, a paradoxically elevated understanding of the skill level of all these evildoers that they're, they're writing about. Because in their, in their mind, these evildoers are uh, hatching these, these incredible schemes and they're succeeding at it and they're poisoning people and no one knows who they are and they're blowing up buildings. Whereas in real life, it doesn't work like that. Um, you know, as soon as someone like Trump you know, <laughs> tries tries to extract a favor from someone in Ukraine, it it becomes the the subject of impeachment hearings. People are really bad at keeping secrets, and they're really bad at poisoning people. And uh, you know, how many times did the U.S. government try and kill Castro? Right? It's like every second Thursday they <laughs> they, they send him something. You know, there's all these like it was like out of Daffy Duck or something where they're sending him exploding cigars or whatever. I don't even know if they really did that, but it it really it it's hard to carry out even um even just killing someone like uh the newspapers are full of these stories of husbands trying to kill their wives or vice versa and uh they try and buy a gun and they're immediately arrested and stuff like crime is hard and and yet when you read these these conspiracist tracks um it 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 comes off as easy and the only place where it actually is easy is in in hollywood and and in science fiction novels and stuff so they have a very shallow understanding of how hard it is to actually pull off the conspiracies that they're imagining. Right. Well, you give these five um, characteristics in the book of a, of a conspiracy, uh, singularity, evil, incumbency, greed, and hypercompetence. And I thought this was really good because you make the point, you know, we think of conspiracy theorists as being just, you know, 9-11 truthers or UFO abductions or stuff like that. But you say that, I mean, conspiratorial thinking is is pretty widespread in people. And that any time that you start believing that there's some large group of people and they're all evil, evil and they're all greedy and they're all working together and they're always accomplishing everything they want to accomplish and they control all the levers of power and they're working against you, you know, that describes a lot of thing, you know, a lot of patterns of thought that people fall into pretty habitually um, in, in all sorts of realms of, uh, of thought. Sure. It pretty much dominates the way a lot of people think about politics. Um, I mean, look at the title of Ann Coulter's books. They're, you know, off the top of my head, I think God was like betrayal, deceit, uh, treason. Yeah, it's it's all about, and it's not like about four people. It it tends to be about how an entire side of the political spectrum uh, is is engaged in this this monstrous scheme to destroy the country. Now, she wouldn't use terms like that, and you know, I've heard Ann Coulter on the radio, and she, you know, she's not stupid and. Uh, she has said smart things, and I, I don't think she's like Alex Jones. But the tribalistic way that she talks about people who she disagrees with falls very much into the category of black and white tribalism. And there, it's definitely the case that there are people on the left side of the spectrum who do the same thing. And, you know, I see it here in Canada. Canada is an interesting case study because there's actually, like, very little difference between the the substantive campaigns of like the liberals or the conservatives or uh we have a party here called the new democratic party and the uh 
I won't, you know, bore you with the details of Canadian politics, but like the spectrum of allowable policy discussion is pretty narrow. And yet by the time election comes, we use exactly the same kind of demonizing discourse that Americans do. And people talk about Justin Trudeau and uh, his conservative opponent in the last election who just stepped down. Uh, his name is Andrew Scheer. You know, they're both, I've met both of these, they're both nice guys. Uh, you know, I wrote a book with Justin Trudeau. He's, he's like, you know, I don't love all his policies, but he's, he's a nice guy. He's not trying to build a Death Star or infect everyone with autism or, you know, like he's just this, this guy who happens to be on the left side of the spectrum. And yet when you talk to people, um, he's, he, you know, it, it, it became an actual mainstream talking point in conservative Canadian politics that Justin Trudeau wanted to destroy Israel, or that, at the very least, he was indifferent to the continued existence of Israel because he differed with his predecessor, Stephen Harper, on certain elements of Middle Eastern policy. Uh, by the same token, it became a mainstream talking point among progressives that Andrew Scheer, the conservative leader who ran the last election, that he wanted to deny every woman in Canada the right to abortion, uh, and that he wanted them barefoot and pregnant in some kind of like atavistic reversion to gender roles from a hundred years ago. Like these smart people I know started to believe these things, or at least said these things. I don't even know if they believe these things. Again, it became performative. Social media means that I'm not even as absurd as these things are. I'm not even sure if I trust that these people actually believe them or if they simply knew that by putting these things on social media, it was a way of, of waving the flag for their political tribe. And, and social media has, that's one way social media has changed things. We focus on the way social media changes things in terms of people now believe terrible things. Uh, but I think there needs to be more focus on the fact that I'm not even sure a lot of these people believe all this stuff. They just use it as ammunition for their own performances because social media isn't just a way to intake information. It's a way to peacock your own political affiliations. You quote an editor in the book when you're, you're writing this um, among the truthers and he tells you debunking books don't sell. Yeah. And I was just curious, did, did, did your experience bear that out or did your book perform better than my, uh, my book performed fine? Um, so, but the, the editor was absolutely right. Um, if you're this, this person who's like, oh, everyone's so stupid and I'm so smart and let me explain why the Twin Towers couldn't have been brought down by internal demolition in the way that these crazy people think and, um, oh, look, here's proof that Barack Obama is really a U.S. citizen despite the fact that you haven't seen his long-form birth certificate. Like, no one wants to read that. In fact, I wouldn't want to read that because it's... You're, you're just this smarmy guy at the dinner party explaining why everybody else is stupid. And I, I can, he, he was right when he told me that. And it's also the case that if you, it's not like these conspiracy theorists don't have access to information that debunks all this stuff. Like, you know, they, they know how to use Wikipedia, right? Uh, they're not stupid. And they have friends who are only too willing to explain to them why they're wasting their lives on this stuff. Um, so, so this editor was absolutely right that debunking books don't sell and they're not useful. And it also, I, I think in the final analysis, wasn't a book that would have been interesting for me because I kind of just would have been copying down information that's publicly available, like from, for instance, the 9-11 commission report. 
what was what I like to think was much more valuable was actually sitting down and talking to conspiracy theorists and not stigmatizing them and realizing that a lot of what, the way they look at the world, we're always in danger of looking at the world in that way ourselves and trying to organize them from a psychological perspective and what needs do they have that these things fill as opposed to, oh, look, they're so kooky. Uh, the book, you know, it wasn't, wasn't a bestseller by any means. I think it, it did respectably. What was interesting is I went on so many national public radio programs. Like I went so many cities, they wanted me on. It's exactly the kind of book that NPR listeners want to, they like to know that the book exists. I'm not sure how many people would actually read it, but I I met so many people who are like, oh, I got to give your book to my uncle or I got to (laughs) give your book to my ex-wife or I got to give your book to my boss or like, Everyone I met, they didn't need the book, but they were convinced that like, the, <laughs> yeah. you know, the crazy person in their life. But of course, the, you know, that person had no interest in reading my book. Uh, so, you know, that's one of the reasons, <laughs> you know, I didn't get rich off the book, but I'm really glad I wrote it. It was, uh, it, it was, if only for the fact that it taught me the warning signs of when this thinking begins to infect my own uh, consciousness. Because I, you know, I, I spent a long time, a lot of my time writing and a lot of my time editing. And I know, you know, when people pitch me articles now, um, I can see when they start to like go down that road. And I'm like, uh, you know, I could spend a month wasting my time editing this until I realize that it's, it's nonsense. But now there's sort of like early warning bells. And at the same time, I can't let those early warning bells go off too early because then, you just become this person who's not willing to entertain any challenge to conventional wisdom. And that's not good either. Like, that's why the word skeptic has a double meaning. Like, you know, a skeptic is either the crazy person who's a conspiracy theorist. That's radical, you know, sometimes radical skepticism is like that. But the skeptic is also like, you know, Galileo or Copernicus or, uh, you know, the first person who discovered, um, you know, every medical discovery we have who just looked at the world differently. Uh, and so it's it's a constant balance, and you know, writing that book helped me think about where that balance is. Yeah, and you sort of say in the book that once someone is into a conspiracy theory, it's pretty much a lost cause at that point. That you really have to get people before they fall into the conspiracy theories and sort of train them to spot these patterns. And you say that actually something you think would be really good would it would be if students were just taught about like the protocols of the elders of Zion and the Holocaust denial movement and just these sort of uncontroversial um, conspiracies or, you know, false things. And then they could hopefully generalize from those examples to other conspiracies that they would come across. Have you, um, has anyone done that or is there any um, traction in that direction? So, I mean, I think, I think it's a good idea in theory. And um, I, the problem is, because I, when I wrote the book, my my kids were like four and six, and my, now my kids are like thirteen and fifteen, and I have great kids, I love them, but at that age, if you tell a kid up, they'll say down. If you tell a kid left, they'll say right. And if you give a kid the protocols of the elders of Zion and say, here's an example of a horrifying thing you shouldn't believe, uh there's going to be something. Not because they're anti-Semitic necessarily, but just because they're going to be like, oh. So saying I believe this is a way of saying fuck you. And you're like, yes, exactly. And they're saying, I believe this. Like it's there was part of me at that age that would have done that too, because uh adolescents are geared toward acts of rebellion. It's again, it's part of our evolutionary psychology. We we mark our ascent to adulthood 
by by sometimes in, in a ritualistic way uh, defying social norms or striking out on our own or uh, it's it's or you know to impress our peer group or whatever and I don't know that there's any way to insulate people from this so I I like to think I, I had some ideas for how you could discuss this sort of stuff but whatever the prevailing wisdom is kids are going to buck it and I see it now with my own kids right like or not necessarily my own kids but like in their peer group. Uh, for the last maybe five or 10 years, there's been this new wave of political correctness that has swept schools. And you already see like 15 and 16 year olds from upper middle class left-wing families who it's like, they like Jordan Peterson and they're skeptical of the trans movement and they're, um, you know, they put a conservative bumper sticker on, on the back of their, their computer. Cause that's the way you express opposition to received wisdom. Like you just, you know, for them, that's, that's, that's what it is. And I don't deny the, the fundamentally leftist, um, trend in our culture, especially on social issues, but no orthodoxy lasts more than a generation in that kind of field because there's just kids challenge everything they're told. And if you tell them, um, Whatever you tell them about conspiracy theories, about the protocols, about Barack Obama's birth certificate, 9-11, they're going to they're gonna find a way to undermine that uh, because so it's you, performance. you think there's nothing really to do about conspiracy theories or um, – So I, – no, I do think there is. I, so on an interpersonal level, when a person starts drifting into conspiracism, I always say – and I, I wrote this in the book – like – Ask what else is going on in their life. Like that, that was the first question. And I think I say it in the book. When someone starts going off on a conspiracy theory, don't ask what. Ask when. And by saying, don't ask what, I'm saying, don't just go ask for more details about it. They'll talk for hours about it. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's, um, it's one of, one of the symptoms of it. It is a sort of logorrhea. Uh, whereas I, it's much more interesting when I say, oh, when did you start believing that? And, and sometimes, you know, sometimes you get like really sad stories. Like, um, you know, like there was this one guy I talk about in the book and he believed that the, the war in Kosovo was like the KLA attacks, the Kosovo Liberation Army attacks that were caught on film and stuff. That was all done in a Hollywood studio. And, um, it was, it was kind of preposterous stuff, but I, I asked him like, when did you start believing it? And he said, I started believing this stuff because the Western media was telling me that the Serbians were all monsters and the Kosovar Albanians were all angels. And, you know, the Serbs lined up behind the Allies for the most part in World War II. And he, and he gave me this history lesson. By the time he'd done his history lesson, I was like, look, I don't agree with you about KLA atrocities being committed in Hollywood sound stages. But it is true that I can see how somebody who was a Serb nationalist would be so horrified by the way the Western media was vilifying the Serbs that they would think that there's got to be some conspiracy behind it. And and it made me think about the way the media was presenting the war. It, I wasn't, I don't want to victim blame here and say, oh, you know, it's all, I still think that it's a crazy conspiracy theory, but it was a much more interesting conversation to have with a guy to say, when did you start believing this? than if I just sat there lecturing him about how difficult it would be for NATO to engineer all these videos in Hollywood. Like that just wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a purposeful conversation. And the only way I was ever going to get to this guy and sort of change his mind was by 
by asking like what else was going on. Now it sounds condescending, like like I'm in the doctor, you know, like well, what else is going on in your life? Like that it is a condescending kind of thing. Like I'm uh, I'm objectifying his form of belief as a form of pathology. Um, but there are humane, socially tactful ways of doing it that also allow you to educate yourself. Um, and also people just like being hurt. People like being understood. And even if you don't convince them, uh, you can medicate their sense of distrust just by hearing them out. Uh, and that's, that's just part of the social experience of talking to somebody who has a radically different belief from yours. So have you read Glenn Beck's novel, The Overton Window? And if so, how does it stack up against the Da Vinci Code and the Left Behind series? So the Overton, Overton Window, I did read it. Um, and it's a really interesting book because it was, um, First of all, I don't think Glenn Beck actually wrote it. I think it was, it was, it was ghost written. It, 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 if I remember, it came out like at the height of the Beck phenomenon. Uh, there was a period where Glenn Beck was riding really high on Fox News. And, um, but I remember what was interesting about that is in the book, there's a character, if I remember correctly, who's like he's innocent, but he is vilified and he's followed around by the American security apparatus, like on suspicion of being an Islamic terrorist or I forget, like some kind of terrorist. And I remember it was really interesting because here's a writer for Fox News. Well, he's a, he was a broadcaster for Fox News who was like part of the plot was about the overreach of the post 9-11 security state and how it was imposing on civil liberties and demonizing people on sometimes like unfounded suspicions. I remember that was really interesting because that's a kind of critique of the security state that you hear from the left uh, and a valid critique, if I may add. Um, and I remember at that time thinking that it was interesting how the right and the left in their suspicion of, of big government, there is some common ground because when it comes to criticizing big government, conservatives usually like will make an exception for security issues like they don't mind the big state when it's the pentagon right um but but there was a certain radical honesty in glenn beck being a conservative and and joining in the left-wing critique of um the security state overreach uh so that's what i remember from the overton window um if if i'm remembering the plot accurately but do you, I mean, do you recommend it as a, just, is it, I'm just curious. No, it's no, it's not novel. a good book. No, it wasn't a good book. And I don't think I read the whole thing. Um, da Vinci Code, I read every word. And, and Da Vinci Code is a good book in, in the sense, it's like a good crap book. Uh, it made me want to turn the page. And what was really interesting about the Da Vinci Code is it made me fascinated by the history of the Roman Empire. Because I knew that everything I was reading was bullshit, but I wanted to understand why it was bullshit. So, if, in case you and your listeners don't know, at the heart of the Da Vinci Code is this theory that there was this like true bloodline of Christ, which ran through something called the Merovingians, if I remember correctly. Um, the Merovingian um, Empire, it's like briefly flourished in the 5th century, sort of like the very late stages of the Western Roman Empire, and I think like the descendants of Christ had somehow married into it. And that aspect of it, even though I knew it was nonsense, I wanted to learn more about it. And so in the years since I read it, I've like been reading obsessively about the Roman Empire. Uh, 
so Dan Brown, in his way, got me into that. But what was interesting about the Da Vinci Code, and I think it's something I write about in the book, is that on the flip side of conspiracism, there's often utopianism. So inherent in a lot of conspiracy theories is the sort of Garden of Eden story that we would live in this wonderful world of like, you know, feminism and uh, people would all get along and there'd be no war and stuff like that. It'd be sort of like an Atlantis. Uh, however, there's this group of people who, for their own purposes, for their own greed, uh, instead they've, they've fomented war and capitalism and all these, all these things that have divided society. And if we can just find this group of people and hold them to account, um, then we can reclaim this, this utopia that is our rightful inheritance. And so even though conspiracy theories are really dark, and have a lot of violence in them, there is a sort of hopefulness to them because real life isn't like that at all. Like real life, violence and evil are just sort of random and, you know, horrible things happen to good people and good things happen to horrible people and eventually we all die, which is, which is terrible. Uh, but conspiracy theories hold out the hope that if we look hard enough, we can find out this, you know, singularity is one of the elements of the conspiracy theories. We can find out this like single cabal of evildoers and, and once we hold them to account, then we can uh, we can live in a world uh, that has been stripped of evil. You know, Dave, for David Icke, the evildoers are, are extraterrestrial lizards. For some people, it's Jews or it's Muslims or it's uh, liberals or it's conservatives. But there's always this hope that's offered that we're going to live in a purified world. It's you know, it's a very religious idea, right? Um, if 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 only we can we can find who these these people are and and hold them to account. Right. You make that point in the book that all these conspiracy theories have this Manichaean quality of uh, this battle of good versus evil. And one of the lines I thought was hilarious is you, when you're talking about the Left Behind series, um, it's the Antichrist, I think, and it is named Nikolai Carpathia. And you quote somebody as saying, uh, apparently they, the authors didn't think to name him Evil J Transylvania. <laughs> yes, uh, it's, it's, it's a great name. It's like, well, he's like the Malfoy of... Uh... Uh, well, I mean, it's the, I remember the same response when I read uh, I read the Harry Potter series to my kids, where the evil house is called Slytherin. <laughs> like, how ridiculous is that? Um, it's one of my many critiques of Harry Potter, which I won't I won't clutter your airwaves with it. I mean, she did uh, make a billion dollars, so she did make a billion dollars. Um, but I I thought that was like a little much, right? <laughs> that it's actually called Slytherin. The idea that there's a kid who shows up at Hogwarts and they stick the sorting hat on his head and, you know, <laughs> um, and, and the kids, oh, congratulations, you're in Slytherin. Like, even as an eight-year-old, you'd be horrified by that. But I, I, I'm, I'm going, I'm really going off topic. Yeah. All right. Well, so this is probably going to be my uh, last question. But so you, uh, you have a blurb on the book from Steven Pinker. And I was just curious if uh, if you know him, or did you ask him for a blurb, or is he a big board game fan, or like how did that come? Oh, about? you mean on, on on my latest book, the board game book? Oh, sorry, yeah, on on your move, yeah, yeah, no. So, um, uh, he and I are not best buddies, but uh, he he appeared on my podcast, on the Quillette podcast. Um, I interviewed him about. So as as I'm sure you know, he had this book um, about the Enlightenment. Uh, yeah, no, I, I interviewed him about it. So. Yeah, there you go. I mean, he's he's exactly the kind of guy who would who'd be great on your show. And um and then I went to a conference in New York a couple of months after that, and I saw him and uh, we talked. 
uh, and I interviewed him about some other stuff. And he, he then wrote an article for me at Quillette, which I edited, uh, and we fell into this dialogue. And, uh, I, he, I mean, he's, he's such a polymath. I don't think he's a huge board gamer, but he's certainly, he's fascinated by the way board games and board game culture, uh, fit into his, his various other passions. Uh, he's also probably just the most famous person that, uh, would return my email, uh, <laughs> which, which is like, that's probably, if you talk to the marketing department of your book publisher, at the end of the day, that's kind of what they want is like, you know, if, if you can get, um, you know, Tom Brady to say he loves board games, they, they would have put Tom Brady on that book. <laughs> have you ever played board games with anyone, any celebrities or anything? <laughs> that's, that's, that's like, it's like when you write a book of, you know, a Hollywood expose and they say, have you ever slept with Sharon Stone? Uh, <laughs> I, I, no, I, I don't think I've ever, that's a really good question. Have I ever played board games with a celebrity? Um, God, no, absolutely not. Which is, and which is not, it's not a crazy question because I know that like, um, Bill Gates and, um, uh, is a huge fan of bridge and he used to play with that, um, that huge investor, the guy from Omaha, what's his name? Um, uh, Warren Buffett. Buffett. Yeah. Warren Buffett is, is huge. I, I know that on the bridge circuit, there are some very famous people who play. Uh, I think like if you go to Gen Con, the people who create a stir when you, when they enter the room tend to be like famous artists. Uh, I don't think there's any actual uh, c- celebrities in the board game. But that's probably like one of the reasons people like it is is it's sort of like a flat celebrity curve. Um, but yeah, that's I never even thought of that playing board games against us. What would that be like? Um, Maybe you should email Steven Pinker back and see if he he'll play a board game with you, so you can. Well, I'm thinking like say, uh, he's a smart guy, but I'm thinking more of like Julia Stiles or like I'm thinking like real celebrities. Um, that, that may have to be my next project. One of the guys in the book, he says he has like groupies and stuff. One of the board game designers. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so yeah, he's a fascinating guy. So he's a guy, his name is Phil Eklund and, and it's true. So Phil Eklund is, if you should get him on the show, Phil Eklund is a literal rocket scientist from Arizona. Like he designed rockets and in his spare time, he designed board games. And I think eventually he got rich enough that he was like, enough with the rockets. He moved to Germany. And now all he does is design these like crazy, esoteric, amazing original games um, with names like Pax Renaissance, where like you're a banker during, you know, the, the 1500s or um, High Frontier, which models the physics of, of rocketry. Um and he lives in a small town in Germany, and he's clearly like, I don't know if he's on the spectrum, but like he's very, he's super introvert, right? And then once a year, he has to promote his new games. So he goes to Spiel, or I don't think he, maybe he goes to Gen Con or something like that. And yeah, so like he is the board game equivalent of like, um, like an art house celebrity. You know, he, he was like Woody Allen, you know, 20 years ago before the whole thing so and and he told me um this, i think it's chapter two of the book where like you know he's he says he's surrounded by groupies i bet you know it's probably like seven groupies right <laughs> um and, and they're probably like people like me who are like oh man let me tell you about this game i play and they're like they go through like a detailed re- 
counting or they ask them for well you know, he means surrounded like, like on a hex map right where you only need like five to, <laughs> it's, yes exactly uh it's it's uh he's geometrically surrounded but then he said but then when i go back to to my home i have to like decompress in my room for like three days and like not see anybody um and that's one of the weird things about these meetups is that a lot of these people are highly introverted people but you're putting, you know, 80,000 of them in in a conference center together. And so it's like it's an interesting social experiment, but it usually goes well. Uh it it, it usually goes well. Uh, introverts are actually usually very careful about their social interactions because they know that if there's conflict that emerges, they won't know how to manage it. So as a result, there's like a heightened sense of politeness and consideration at these places. Um you should go. Uh there the you should go to Gen Con next year. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is great. This has been such a fun conversation, John. I think we should probably start wrapping this up. Do you have any, uh, just any final thoughts or any other projects or articles you want to let people know about? Uh, so my next book, which is coming out next year, is a history of film exhibition. Um, it's mostly about the history of film exhibition in New York City, but I talk about uh, theaters in Milwaukee and Connecticut, and I travel to Las Vegas and California to uh, do my reporting. It sounds like a boring subject, uh, but as I think, I like to think with the board game book, it, um, it has some interesting things to, uh, to give the reader. So a year from now, uh, hopefully, uh, we'll be talking about film exhibition. That's the, that's the title, film exhibition? Uh, it's four generations. So it's, it, um, I'm having an argument because my preferred title, the publisher said was incredibly pretentious. <laughs> so, um, it's probably, that's, this is always a thing. Like my, my board game book was called Your Move and I wanted to call it I Meeple. Um, like kind of an iRobot thing, but, but I Meeple. And, and the publisher said like, no one's going to get that. It's so stupid. Yeah, I, um, I wouldn't get, I wouldn't get that. I don't think. Right. It has to be a person who knows sci-fi and knows board games. So it'd be like for seven people. <laughs> um, but I really wanted to impress those seven people. Uh, so this book, it's, it's about four generations. So I found a family that's been in the film exhibition business for four generations, starting with their, their great grandfather who came over from Galicia in the 1890s and like opened one of the first, uh, uh, Nickelodeons in New York City. And ever from that first Nickelodeon, they're still running strong and they have like 300 theaters and stuff. And so I think it's going to be, the subtitle is going to be like a history of film exhibition in four generations because the last two generations are still around and I interviewed them for the book. So it's a, it's a history book and it's fun. All right, cool. Yeah, well, definitely looking forward to that. I really enjoyed these two books, Your Move and Among the Truthers. And so we've been speaking with Jonathan Kay. So John, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Jonathan Kay for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoyed the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program... 
tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening. <laughs>